0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast channel here on New Books Network. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, the host of the channel, and today we're talking to Dr. Irene Mulvey, who is the president of the American Association of University Professors. And today she's giving us an inside look into that association. Welcome to the show, Irene.
1: Thank you so much, Christina. I am delighted to be invited to your podcast and really excited to have this conversation with you.
0: I am so glad that you're here and that we get this inside look. And I know there's a number of things you're excited to share with us today and things you're passionate about that your organization is advocating for. But before we jump into that, would you please tell us a bit about yourself?
1: Sure. I am a professor of mathematics at Fairfield University, where I've been teaching for 37 years. So I think, um, you know, if people do the subtraction, you can figure out that I sort of got my PhD and came of age in the 1970s as part of the women's movement. And I felt very supported in that era to get a PhD in mathematics, I am also a mom. I have three grown adult children. And um, education, higher education is my passion.
0: If we could circle back a little bit and talk about when you were a student, how did you decide on mathematics? When did you know that was what you wanted to do?
1: Um, I was always very good in math. I was really good in math at high school. I went to an all-girls Catholic school, which I think... There were, you know, fewer distractions, and I was able to be good in math without feeling that it was odd for a a girl to be good at math. And then I went into college, uh, majoring, planning to major in math. And I still, even when I got to the higher levels of math, I still liked it. I still enjoyed it very much, and I had great teachers and faculty professors that mentored me and uh, suggested I go on to higher ed. I will say. I am a first-generation college student. Neither of my parents went to college. I'm one of five children, and all five went to college, which was very important to my parents. So I know how higher ed is an engine of social mobility, or it used to be an engine of social mobility, where you really could move forward without incurring tons and tons of student debt, which is a terrible problem, brought about by the underfunding of higher education. But back to your question, I was a, a senior in college and one of the faculty members in a, in a class said to us, math major, class of math majors, so who's going to graduate school? And I said, graduate school, what's that? I had no idea, but you know, the this faculty member was really good at mentoring us, helping us figure out how to apply, where to apply and what we might do. I got my PhD at Wesleyan University, which is a small PhD program, so I was also extremely well-supported there by the faculty. I think it was, you know, if I had been 10 years younger, it would have been more difficult. You'd be fighting for for your chance. But somehow, uh, starting my PhD program in 1977, you know, the end of the decade where the women's movement really took hold, was fortuitous, and I, I feel that... Um, I I know people look back and think uh, we we were trailblazers. In a sense, we were trailblazers, but we were really supported as a result of the women's movement. And then from there, I went into higher ed where I've been, like I said, teaching for 40 years.
0: And when you went into higher ed, was tenure track a given? If you got hired as a professor, you could expect that you were on the tenure track and that was accessible and a real thing for you? Yes. Uh,
1: When I got my first job in 1985, um, pretty much everyone in the job market that year was looking for tenure track jobs, expecting tenure track jobs. The jobs we were applying for, for were tenure track jobs. It was absolutely the norm at that time. Unlike now, which I'm sure we'll talk about later, but certainly, uh, my first job was a visiting position, a three-year visiting position, because it was the best year I got, and I used it as a stepping stone towards um, a tenure-track job. But the norm, absolutely, for people getting PhDs back in the 70s and 80s, was a tenure-track position. That was that was the goal, and that was achievable for nearly everyone.
0: And it sounds like you had mentors along the way, and if I'm reading what you said so far correctly, your family was rooting you on.
1: Yeah, my family. My feel, I don't know if they knew what to make of it once it was past uh, a col- a bachelor's degree, but they're all very supportive. I mean, our, um, yeah, my parents were very supportive. My my I am I, I, the family was I'm uh, I have a brother that has a master's degree, but I'm the only one that went past that for a PhD. So I, I don't think they knew what to make of it, my parents. But absolutely, I have a very supportive family. We're very close. We're all grown up now, facing retirement. But, the, but I think the, the real mentorship was at the, um, that, that's a good, that's a good point. The real mentorship was at the universities because my parents would not have known the first thing about graduate degrees how to apply? Where to apply? How to get funding? So the real mentorship came from the faculty that taught me in these schools I went to.
0: And I think that's true for a lot of us. We may have relatives who want to root us on, but they're not going to give us the roadmap.
1: Right. I agree completely. Yeah, the roadmap really—that's our job as faculty. To—I mean, I had people did it for me, and now it's—it's our—it's jo- my job as a faculty member. And, and not, not just the faculty member, the departments should have that kind of support for um, students who want to go into graduate school or, or want to do anything. So, right, it's up to the universities, the departments and the faculty to help the students. That's what that's that's part of what higher education should be doing. It's it's a uh, you know, it's so many things. Um, it's an it should be an opener of minds and a uh, uh, engine of social mobility and also an economic driver for their communities. But in terms of um, helping, citizens, helping, member, helping people who live in a democracy move forward, higher education is, in my view, higher edu- and in, in the view of the AAUP, higher education is a public good it should serve the public good in, in so many different ways. And one of those ways is in helping the students who attend the schools to move forward as informed citizens.
0: So let's get into what the AAUP is. It was founded in 1915. Why was it founded and what is the mission?
1: That's a great question. The AAUP was founded in 19, 1915 by faculty members and at the time... Uh, there were, the faculty saw the threats to the profession that came from inappropriate interference into our work. So um, the, dec- the 1915 Declaration of Principles, which was drafted um, at a preliminary meeting, <coughs> was intended... And I put this in quotes: "quote to make collective action possible." So, in the first instance, the AAUP was founded to organize the profession in order to protect the profession and support the profession. Almost immediately, uh, the leaders of the organ of of the of the formation of the AAUP started getting reports of interference in higher education. So for example, I may not have all the deep, this is basically the story at Stanford. Uh, some faculty members were fired by the widow of the Leland Stanford, the benefactor, because she didn't like their research into railroad monopolies and Stanford had made his money in the railroad industry, so this is the first um, uh, notification to the AAUP that that uh, of the threat to academic freedom. And so, since then, I mean, within the first year, the AAUP set up this committee on academic freedom, and they've been investigating violations of academic freedom. So, even though technically our our organization was founded to make collective action possible really um, its main focus is academic freedom advancing academic freedom protecting academic freedom is the Aap's core mission um, Our founders acknowledge recognize that academic freedom is what's essential for the profession it's needed for teaching you know we you can't have someone tell you you must say this in the classroom you can't say that in the classroom that's completely antithetical to what higher education should should be. So academic freedom is needed in teaching. Academic freedom is needed in research, um, not for the individual faculty member to do whatever they want, but the academic freedom is for the work. The work should be able to go wherever it leads without interference from someone who doesn't like where that work is going. So it's not... In, it's not academic freedom for the individual teacher. It's academic freedom for the, for the work. And then you have to have academic freedom. Another component of academic freedom is to be able to speak up about the institution. If you want to criticize the institution, uh, complain about uh, how much money is being put into athletics or that the budget is prioritizing uh, non-academic initiatives academic freedom protects an individual from speaking up like that and finally the fourth is extramural utterances a, a faculty member should be protected should have the same free free speech rights as any other person and shouldn't be disciplined for um for you know something they say on twitter or or in an op-ed so i think ba- may, um our main focus is academic freedom And I can certainly talk about that for many hours. And our secondary focus is shared governance. That in higher education, there are, uh, it's different from the corporate world or other places because the faculty have expertise in their fields that far surpasses the academic expertise in that field of board members or the administrators or the presidents. So faculty, because of their academic expertise, have a responsibility and an obligation to um, have, they should have decision-making authority over anything over which they have primary responsibility. So this is, uh, for example, curriculum, hiring, tenure, promotion, uh, anything that focuses on academics, research, these are all matters over which faculty must exercise primary responsibility. And so in in an institution where shared governance is working properly, um, in those areas over which faculty exercise primary responsibility, they make decisions which are upheld by the administration and the board. So that's those are our two basic focuses, academic freedom and shared governance.
0: And I know something that's of real concern to you is what's going on with tenure in higher ed and what we should all do about it. Do you want to talk to us about your thoughts, particularly as a person who had the opportunity to pursue tenure and whose cohort had the same opportunity? And you just can't tell grad students that today. Right.
1: Right, I have two two children in academics. One is a one managed to get a tenure track job, and the other is uh, not does not have a tenure track position yet. But this is it's a it's a great thing to have brought up. You cannot talk about academic freedom without including tenure, because academic freedom is not protected without tenure. The whole point of tenure is to protect academic freedom. And, um, so when a faculty member achieves 10 is granted tenure after seven years in the full time in the profession, um, they cannot be fired except they can be fired, but they can't be disciplined or, uh, fired except for adequate cause following an adjudicative hearing before an elected faculty body at which the administration has to make the case for discipline or dismissal so academic freedom is a wonderful concept but it's not protected unless the faculty member has tenure so and tenure requires this academic due process that i just articulated so um, in Lots of places right now, they are attacking tenure. They're they're attacking tenure, as if tenure is just job security or just some perk that faculty that professors get that uh, people in other professions don't get, and that is a complete mischaracterization of tenure. Tenure protects academic freedom. If you do away with um, um, Tenure, then there's no more academic freedom. So um, these attacks on tenure are attacks on academic freedom, and attacks on academic freedom are attacks on higher education as a public good necessary in a democracy. And I think uh, what you're probably alluding to, or what most many people probably listening to your podcast will um, may know, is that the percent of professors that have tenure or are in tenure stream positions or that are tenure eligible has decreased dramatically over the last several decades. And so the vast majority of faculty teaching today do not have tenure, do not have any um, uh, opportunity to get tenure and they're off the tenure track, they're contingent faculty, and as a result, this is a this is a terrible thing for higher ed because without tenure, there's no protection for academic freedom. It's a it's a, it's a real problem which we're fighting against. We've been fighting against it. You know, we've been fighting for academic freedom since our founding in 1915. But now, and we're still fighting for academic freedom. It has to be constantly uh, protected. But now the attacks have um, decoupled tenure from academic freedom, which makes it easier to portray tenure as just some fancy perk for the elite and, you know, make it a talking point for uh, for politicians to throw red meat to the base, um, as opposed to um, understanding what really happens when you attack tenure is you lose academic freedom in their institutions, which is you know, the whole point. I mean, and faculty are never going to stop fighting for this. I mean, these attacks on tenure, which are attacks on academic freedom. It's the kind of thing faculty will never quit fighting for because it's why we went into this profession. It's why why we went into our, our, our why we do our scholarship, why we teach.
0: With so much of the instruction being done by contingents at many schools, it's 80% of the teaching is done by visiting professors, graduate students, people who are hired just to teach for a semester or for a year, it strikes me that the students also lose academic freedom because if you can't stay in touch with the professor who got you started on your research project or who inspired you or who is in fact, perhaps the one obscure expert in the world on the you know rare kind of moss that you want to research, the students lose their freedom as well because they can't keep working with these instructors who are moving from school to school to school.
1: Right. It's it's um, the, this problem of contingency, or sometimes we call it the adjunctification of the profession, is problematic in so many ways. First of all, for the reason you describe that, if your faculty member doesn't have any kind of job security at the institution you're at, you may not be able to continue your studies with that faculty member. But even more, um, m- more day to day, a lot of faculty are teaching part time. They have to cobble together courses at diff- several different institutions in order. You know they're paid something like $2,000 to $5,000 on average, probably $4,000 a course. So they're cobbling together, you know, a couple of courses at several different institutions. They have no time to spend with their students. They have no, t- they're not available for office hours. They don't have an office. Usually they don't have um, an extension or, where people can reach them. So they the quality of education suffers for the students, absolutely, because these uh, people are scrambling around trying to make ends meet. We, I'm aware of contingent faculty who are cobbling together. Um, be, you know, first of all, let's let's be clear. These are these are people who went, you know, to college and then to, got a graduate degree and spent all this time on the training and the academic. Um, expert to gain the academic expertise to to work in some field uh, to, you know to really become an expert and now they find themselves unable to get a job where they can make a living doing this work that it's like a gig economy i mean it's like it's like being an uber driver or a lyft driver but ha- doing that after spending 10 years Getting trained to do your scholarship, and God knows how much student debt, incurring so much student debt, so it's it it's this adjunctification of the profession. This con- problem of contingency results in um, a, a diminishment of the quality of education. There's there's just no way when these faculty are worried about. Do I have enough money to pay my rent that they can provide, you know, uh, full attention to their students? And, and so this, the, you know, the faculty it's, it's, it's an outrage. What, what's, what the, the, the living conditions that faculty members are being, are being forced to live in, in this day and age in in higher education. And it's terrible for the students and the the, um, couple that with the um I don't have the statistics with me with me at, at hand but at many institutions the amount of administrative full-time administrators is increasing we refer to it as administrative bloat where there's a new vice president for this and there's a new associate dean for that and these are full-time employees making much more you know making high salaries and the whole point of the of the institution is to provide education, and they're delegating that to um, people probably make under the poverty line, relying on food stamps and other government assistance. After being trained as experts, it's it's shameful. It's absolutely shameful exploitation, and I wish more people knew about it. I wish when people. Took their students on their, you know, their high school students on college tours. They would ask, "How many of the courses are taught by adjunct faculty? How many of the courses are taught by contingent faculty? What percentage of the faculty have tenure?" Um, It's really, it's a, it's, it's shameful exploitation. I mean, we can go to the root of it. There's, there's a couple of causes. There's first of all, we've had decades of disinvestment in higher education at the federal and state level. And those that disinvestment has been passed on to the students in terms of higher tuition and in the faculty in terms of um, you know fewer full-time and more adjuncts.
0: I think it's so hard for students, and if they have family financial support, to uh, go to school. It's very hard for their families to understand as well because the tuition price is the same whether the professor teaching it is tenured or the professor teaching it is getting $2,000 for teaching the entire course.
1: That's exactly right. The tuition is the same, no matter who's teaching the course. And in some class, in, as you said, some places it's up to 80% of the faculty are getting paid, um, $4,000 to teach a course and in, in others, you know, faculty, you know, beginning faculty, depending on the area of the country could be getting 60 or $70,000 a year with benefits. The adjuncts, not only do they, do they get paid next to nothing, they typically don't have benefits. They don't have health insurance. They're not being able to put away money into the retirement. It's it's complete exploitation and um, students and their families don't may not understand the extent of it.
0: When they're looking at the tuition bill, I, I, I think they can't fathom uh, what we're talking about. You know, the the cost of, of tuition if you don't have financial aid is, is substantial, as you said, and it, it just wouldn't occur to anybody, I think, to ask, are, are, are the people teaching these classes being well-paid because you're looking right. at what you're paying for tuition and you're assuming, of course they are, I can see the bill.
1: Right, right. Absolutely, I'm sure that's I'm sure that's exactly what happens. People are assuming, uh, people are well paid because look at what I'm paying for this education. Yeah,
0: and so the AAUP is very concerned about tenure, and they're concerned about um, collective bargaining and all the faculty feeling like they're in this together. What approaches do you advocate, and how do people? become part of this movement?
1: That's a great question. Um, we are all about, I mean, our organization is, um, a grassroots organization. We are every member in the AAP is the member of, is a member of a chapter. Most of these chapters are at institutions. Um, you know, if you don't have enough Members at an institution to have a chapter. You're in our our so-called at large chapter, but most of our work is done at the grassroots levels by members in chapters. And so our issue our our goal is to organize faculty into AAUP chapters wherever wherever we can. We we're, we're a uh, we're a we're a historic organization. We've been around for 1915. We've been um, setting the standards for this profession for 107 years. We have all sorts of statements on contingent faculty, and that um, contingent faculty should be allowed to serve in in uh, governance on faculty senates and so on. You know, we have a we have a lot of statements on contingent faculty. We've been working hard on that, um, and I think. Right now the organizing movement of unionization is um inspiring and uh it's difficult there's there's some there's some hurdles to organizing full-time faculty at private institutions and there's some diff- hurdles to organizing full-time faculty at public institutions in certain states but contingent faculty organizing is does not have the same kinds of hurdles. So, um, and contingent faculty are are organizing into collective bargaining units around the country, and we're looking forward to doing more of that in the future. Um, Right now we are uh, in discussions with the American Federation of Teachers on an affiliation that would help us help the AAUP with reach more deeply into the profession than we are able to right now. Um, And I am really looking forward to trying to organize graduate students and contingent faculty, faculty at historically black institutions, faculty at minority serving institutions, as well as continuing to organize faculty at, at private institutions into AAUP chapters and or AAUP collective bargaining chapters where that's possible. Um, but I think that's that's what needs to happen. The the uh the people in the profession need to organize as workers. And it's I feel like now is a, a real moment where where people see that. I mean in the past, um in the long ago past, I think some members of the AAUP had doubts about collective bargaining, thinking it was for you know working people. But given what's happened, hap- given given what's happened to the profession over these last few decades, I don't think there's any doubt in anyone's mind anymore that collective bargaining, uh, whether it's formal collective bargaining through the National Labor Relations Board or collective action. Just through an AAUP chapter is the way to go. It's the way to build power on your campus. It's the way to make changes on your campus. I mean, the the, the problems of contingency um, they can be fought through collective action on a campus. A faculty can demand uh, a certain fraction of the faculty must be full time and tenured track. A faculty can demand their appropriate role in shared governance and it's there's power in power in numbers there's power in collective action so um i feel like at this moment in time um organizing collective collective organizing is more popular i mean is more popular than ever and the successes that people are seeing you know at starbucks and amazon um i hope will translate into more organizing for us we've done organizing over the last few years we've done We've organized several chapters jointly with the American Federation of Teachers, and these are some of our, you know, we've organized in the University of New Mexico, University of Alaska, University of Vermont. Um, uh, But I think going forward, there there are opportunities in the future to continue organizing those kinds of schools, but to continue, but to reach more deeply into the profession and organize contingent faculty and um, part-time faculty. So I'm, I'm really excited about the opportunities right that, that I see in front of us.
0: When we talk about organizing and we talk about collective bargaining, can we talk about the importance of transparency? I'm thinking of a recent case where uh, two people were hired in a, the same department at the same time, one male, one female. And She ultimately took it to court when she later learned by accident, if I'm remembering the case correctly, she got an email she shouldn't have, which revealed to her that the man who was hired at the same time as her was hired for the same job but at higher rate of pay, and that meant that every time he got a raise, he was exponentially doing better than she was at the point that she brought the suit, and yet they had virtually identical jobs without transparency she didn't know what to bargain for as her starting salary and she didn't know that they had felt the press that had published her book was not as prestigious as the press that had published his book and yet it came out in the court case they didn't research her press at all so they had no data to show that hers wasn't as prestigious when we lack transparency we end up with these kind of problems even on the tenure track
1: yeah well that's absolutely outrageous and i can tell you that it's very common uh women are paid less than men it's it's um you know is it that the male males are um negotiating for a higher salary and the women don't know to negotiate for a higher salary i mean that's all just you know bullshit i mean People should be, there they should, that shouldn't be part of the equation. I mean, salaries should be equitable with regard to gender and race, and they're not. Um, and, and the reason they're not is because of this lack of transparency. I, I imagine that kind of thing could be handled. Um, well, I, I just want to say I, I reiterate that this is extremely common. I know of many people who have inadvertently found out that they are being paid less than other people. I found out I was being paid on average uh, uh, that 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 yeah, I had to fight this fight for myself and um it required first of all wondering was there was there inequity find trying to find the data to see if there was an inequity, and then once uh the inequity was revealed to me uh fighting to get the inequity addressed those are many many steps and lots of people don't know to even you know look at it people assume i've i've, I've talked to lots of several women over the course of my career advising people who learned they were lowballed when they when they were hired by a dean that they later you know grew to admire you know that they admired and then they they found at the time of hiring they were lowballed it's it's really outrageous so i'm i'm you know i agree with you 100% that there should be equity in salaries there should be transparency in salaries um there should be an obvious progression so that people stay on the same track. And that, you know, I'm a professor of mathematics, as I said at the beginning, that little thing, even the difference of $1,000 or $500 or $2,000 in base pay when you start your salary, that will translate into, you know, a, a very substantial amount of money by the end of the by the end of a career and also translate into a substantial difference in retirement savings so it's not a little thing it's a big thing and it's you know it's it's systemic with women and also with faculty of color it's this it's it's uh it's you know it's this systemic racism that we see in the in the society you know higher ed- education isn't immune to that so um, there are also those those inequities there. Not only are there those inequities in terms of um, uh, starting salaries and merit pay increases, but there are also those inequities in promotion and tenure. And that's where I think faculty of color are oftentimes denied promotions um, and uh, you know denied tenure. For reasons that would not uh, result in a denial for a white person. Um faculty of color are I know we're getting off track. It's the same, it's the same idea of inequity, but you know, faculty of color are often expected to work on diversity and inclusion task forces, which is extra work and uh overburdened with uh advising students of color who would naturally turn to faculty of color for help and advice. And so there's this invisible work. Um, I've heard it called the black tax and I, I agree with that a hundred percent. There's this invisible work that burdens faculty of color, burns out faculty of color, and then and you know a white counterpart is just you know teaching their classes and pub take using all their spare time for research to publish and write books, and um, then it's you know it's it's the the shadow of systemic racism that that ends up uh, keeping faculty of color from the higher ranks of academia. This is another problem. This is something the AAP is deeply concerned about, and we're we're. But, you know, it's a, it's a systemic problem. It's higher education is immune from it. The AAUP isn't immune from it. So we've, we've taken on um, a racial equity initiative, which has involved training for the staff and the elected leaders. And, and um, we're, we're working hard on this. But I forgot where we started with this question, but it was, oh, yeah, it was um, transparency in salaries and inequity in salaries, I think when in a collective bargaining situation, those kinds of things can be addressed because um, you know there's typically a grievance procedure that ideally would result in some kind of binding arbitration. But um, organizing is a great answer to a lot of the problems that plague our profession. Organ- grassroots organizing in the AAUP is the national association that's been protecting the profession for nine for 107 years is here to help. We have tons of resources. Our, we have, you know, uh statements and investigations that um are considered sort of case law and you know, air quotes, case law in the in the profession. I mean the the um the resources of the AAUP are formidable. And to get them to work we need Faculty organized on campuses to promulgate our statements and our principles and our um, standards. So, I I, I got was a lot of you asked me my, my, that question so long ago about uh, transparency and salaries, but I think the bottom line is organizing on campuses based on AAU principles is one way to fight back against all the problems in our profession.
0: And it sounds like talking about this, the case that I'm referring to, the male professor had no idea because they had, they had each had their interview separately. They'd signed their contracts separately. And if I'm remembering correctly, he was actually helpful in providing information to her for the suit um, because he was in no part of her being underpaid while he was properly paid, that he he hadn't participated in that, he hadn't known about it. And it strikes me that as we talk more and we organize more, these conversations can more organically happen. There could be far more allies out there than anyone realizes because this stuff is still hidden.
1: Right. I agree. I think that's also not uncommon for the male professor who was overpaid or paid higher than the female professor at the you know doing the same job i i absolutely would would imagine that person is completely innocent of any any wrongdoing here it's it's the it's the i would blame for these kind of things i would blame the administration who are nickel and diming you know hires and um uh you know they're pulling the strings and looking at the overall budget and trying to save money where they can but Um, saving money in this way is, is, I don't know how anyone could do it. It's unconscionable to, to do some, I don't know how anyone could do that. I also think speaking of um, um, finding allies in unexpected places, I think you're right with organizing is, is you absolutely can uh, find allies in unexpected places. Faculty organizations can partner with student organizations to move forward. Uh, with staff associations i mean we're all um, it gra- and with graduate students you know we're we're some some of those groups were all workers on campus we work there i mean uh we during the pandemic uh many of our administrations were sending us you know heartfelt emails thanking us for all we did to keep the institutions running during the pandemic when really what they should have been doing was sending those emails and some kind of a bonus or, you know, course release for a few years from now, because we all believe in the mission of our institutions, but it's a job. We work there. We're workers, and we should be treated with respect like workers. We should demand the respect we deserve as workers. And so um, finding common ground with staff associations and graduate student associations and student groups is a way to build power and, and, um, make sure that the that the institution lives up to its mission i think you know every all those groups would be all in for the missions of these institutions which are which are about higher education and higher education as a common good another place um kind of back to where we talked about earlier in the podcast was the problems with tenure um this may be a little inside baseball but you know uh the tenure the the attacks on tenure that i see are coming from legislators or governors like the governor, Lieutenant governor of Texas, Dan Patrick, attacked tenure. Um, the Florida is attacking tenure. These are happening at the legislate, legislative or governor level. And um, they are, in my view, um, completely without content. They are, they are, um, what do I say? They're they're um, they're dog whistles for the base. They have nothing to do with tenure. They are talking points that these people think they can use to get votes in the next next election. Now, admin and and administrators at these institutions where tenure may be taken away because of state action, they see the danger here and i believe that administrator administrations presidents and administrations of universities as long as they're not in the pocket of the governor or the legislature will see the danger to this uh the these laws threatening to take away tenure and will find common ground with the faculty i don't know that how how uh, outspoken they'll be about um um their disagreement with the legislature with the governor but i i do think that um presidents of institutions as long as they're not in the pockets of the governor and um administra- senior administration in, in in institutions will see that these attacks on tenure Will result in um, will have an impact on recruiting faculty and retaining faculty. Faculty are if faculty have a choice between a job where uh, there's no tenure and the governor is anti tenure and and a job where there is tenure, they'll absolutely go to the job with tenure because it protects academic freedom. So I think there are there are organizing opportunities everywhere, and there are allies everywhere, and. I don't know that we've done a, a, good, a, a good enough job with the public, that the AAUP and the higher ed community has done a good enough job with the public to explain the importance of higher education in a democracy, especially public higher education in a democracy, the importance of full-time faculty teaching the students, the importance of tenure to protect academic freedom, the importance of having um, most faculty full-time and tenure-eligible and the number of contingent faculty, you know, should be, you know, under a certain, under, under 30%, under 10% or something for, uh, flexibility. But, um, that, that's, that's something where I don't know that that we've done a good enough job, but maybe your podcast will help.
0: (laughs) It strikes me that if we lose tenure and it becomes all contingent for people to try to understand it would be as though your high school was taught entirely for all four years by a rotating cast of substitutes. Um, yeah, it would, because I, at the college level, you're just going to have a rotating group of, you know, people come in and teach the courses, but there's no one who will stay longer than a few months. Yeah.
1: I think that's, that's a problem. I agree, but you know some some contingent faculty do stay for a long time. They're a long term, you know, full time contingent faculty, and short term contingent faculty stay at the same place for a long time. So, but what you what you articulate is a danger. But I think the real danger is when you've got everyone contingent and worried about whether or not they'll get a contract for next semester. So, picture someone in a classroom concerned about. Will I be rehired next year? Well, that's going to have an effect on conversations they have in the classroom. They may self-censor themselves on difficult conversations because they don't want students to complain about what's being discussed in the conversation. It may it'll certainly it'll it'll likely result in grade inflation because, you know, if you're too many students are complaining that their grades are too low, um, you're liable to be not hired back again um you it, it it really the it, it it the the quality of education is liable to suffer not because the adjunct faculty don't want to do the right thing but and and many of them will do the right thing but but if you're if you're really worried about your actual livelihood being taken away from you um then that will have an effect on how you teach What you decide to research, whether or not you'll decide to do a research project that might take three or four years to come to fruition, because after two years with nothing to show for it, you know you might be let go. So I think it's it is like you said, it's like uh, the and and contingent faculty are liable not to have the same kind of connection to the department and the institution, like your your analogy about you know four years of substitute teachers, Um, if the institution isn't going to make the commitment to that faculty member. Um, then I, I'm, I agree with you. The, the faculty member is less likely to make the commitment to the institution. They will make the commitment to the students because I have never seen adjunct faculty who aren't committed to the students and to the teaching and to the subject. But, um, the commitment to the institution is less likely to be made. And and that's to the detriment of the, of the school.
0: And it's to the detriment of research as well. You touched on that a moment ago, but applying for grants and fellowships, if you're contingent, a lot of those doors are shut to you. And as you said, if you're cobbling together a living um, amongst four different institutions in a single semester, the, time and energy you have left to really do a sustained research project is greatly diminished. Exactly right. It's, it's,
1: it's so you, you, you said it exactly right. And it's extremely depressing and it's, it's just exploitative and, and especially, you know, to, to have for, for the administrations and the boards of these institutions to have turned the profession of teaching in higher education into a gig economy is an outrage. And, and you know, as I said a, few, a little, few minutes earlier in the podcast, I mean, we're talking about people who have dedicated themselves to their field, to their scholarship, to teaching and researching in a field. And they've dedicated themselves to this, you know, at great personal expense, of money and time and now they end up at the other end of their of their uh education in a gig economy it's it's an absolute it's absolutely shameful and you know I hope we can I, my goal I I see opportunities in the future. We're doing what we can to help organize at contingent faculty. I mean, as I said, if you go onto the AAP website, we have lots of resources for contingent faculty. Um, and we've been we've been working on this problem of contingency for a while, but I do see opportunities right now. I feel like it's a it's a great time right now for organizing workers across the spectrum of jobs, and in particular in higher education.
0: One final thing um, that's, I think we've touched on but we haven't said explicitly is the importance of relationships. Faculty rely on each other. They get to know students. Knowledge is not something you want to do all by yourself alone. It's something that you want to share and that gets better because you've shared it. A huge part of academic freedom is letting the knowledge permeate out and to get feedback on it and to have it be this living thing that many, many people are engaging with. And the core of that is the sustained relationships.
1: Right. I mean, that's, that's right. I mean, that's, um, within the Academy, um, you know, it's, Right Departments have there are relationships within a department, there are relationships within a field, there are relationships within classes, and these are all essential to um, creating knowledge, to disseminating knowledge, to moving research forward. These are um, these are essential and and um, and I think it's in many cases, why people have gone into this profession? I think um, there are some faculty that are just strictly researchers, and but I think the vast majority of faculty went into this position, went into their position, went into this profession to be able to teach the next generation, to bring the next generation along, you know, the way the way we were brought along by our 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 professors. So I think that relationship, the the relationship between faculty and students in terms of creating knowledge and creative, you know, making these students better writers, better thinkers, critical thinkers, it's um it's probably the reason many people went into the profession and it's it's probably one of the most rewarding parts of the profession is those relationships we're able to build with undergraduates and graduate students and and colleagues in the department and colleagues in our fields.
0: And being able to be in touch with them in the future should they want to reach out. It's it's one of the disadvantages of being contingent. Your email address disappears when your semester of teaching is over. It's very hard to maintain connections and to even write letters of recommendation for, for people you'd love to write one for, but the only email address they have for you ended on the last day of that semester. Yeah,
1: that's really outrageous exploitation. I mean, yeah. We have, I, I, I received an email from a, fa- a former student just today or yesterday, and she's teaching at a high school in a Jesuit affiliated high school in Harlem and wanted to know, did I, did I know students who could, um, who she's going to be the, the chair of her depart of her high school department. I don't know when she graduated 10, 15 years ago, but she was able to reach out to me because I still have the same email address. It's, it's, yeah, I, uh, this, this contingency problem has really made, the, 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 the adjunctification of the profession has really made uh, a lot of problems in the, in the profession, not least of which what you're saying, adjunct faculty lose their email. Those students who they may have had real connections with simply cannot get in touch with them to connect much less to ask for a letter of recommendation from someone who may know them better than anyone else in in the field um, and I my understanding is that certain many places uh, adjunct faculty lose their library privileges at this when the you know then the last day of the semester is over you turn in your grades and and um, you're gone it's it's how can you feel a part of the institution when they kick you to the curb like that it's uh,
0: how, and how can you keep doing your research when the library just said, "I'm sorry, right"? Your card's no good, <laughs> right, right, yeah. Well, we only have a couple minutes left, and I uh, I want to ask you my final question. I like to ask all my guests, which is, what gives you hope?
1: That's a great question. Um, I think what gives me hope is the youth of the nation. In all respects, I, what, what young people are doing with respect to climate change, what young people are doing, um, with respect to politics, what young people in my profession are doing, what graduate, the, the organizing of graduate students all over the country, I feel like it's, um, it's the youth of today. It's 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 their world, and um, I am very hopeful at the activism I see in um, young people, in the Black Lives Matter movement, in climate change movement, in in particular for me, in organizing um, at graduate students and fighting for work, better working conditions and respect. Um, that's what I'm hopeful. That's what gives me hope. Um, also what gives me hope is my own organization, the AAUP. Uh, it's been, I've been involved in the, in the organization at various levels at my school, at the my chapter level, at the state level, at the national level now for, um, Oh, I don't know, going on 20 years. And it's an organization. There's, there's certain organizations that give me hope and the AAUP is one of them. Um, the people I meet in this, in this uh, space are um, the most dedicated activists and fighting for justice, uh, all kinds of justice, racial justice, social justice, economic justice, climate justice. So what gives me hope is my fellow activists, in, in particular, my fellow activists that are next generation
0: Dr. Irene Mulvey, thank you so much for being on the show today and telling us about your role as the president of the American Association of University Professors and for telling us about the hidden stakes in the fight for tenure. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and you've been listening to New Books Network. I hope you will please join us again.